Can you hear me now? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. If you missed uh, day 85, we introduced the book of Joshua. Oh, really? Thank you for that. Having a technical issue. Let me try again. Is that better? Okay. Credit that to user error. I think I know what I did. Joshua chapter 7. This is day 86 in our Through the Bible reading program. And so uh, day 86 is titled Obedience and Victory. And then we're going to cover uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 7, 8, and 9. If you missed our previous class, <clears throat> day 87, which we taught on Thursday night, we gave our introduction to the book of Joshua and went through the first six chapters in a, uh, in a roller coaster of, of, of speed and excitement. We went through the first six chapters of, of Joshua. So we've already, you missed it, you missed the Battle of Jericho, and uh, we would encourage you to go back to the uh, website and, and uh, watch, either watch the YouTube video or listen to the, uh, listen to the MP3, either way. Before we start today, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again this morning, thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together and calling upon your faithfulness, Father, uh, your faithfulness each hour, each session that we meet, each moment, Father, as the Word of God goes forth. I thank you for the faithfulness of the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... Sadly, um, the book of Joshua has more than six chapters, all right? And, and the reason why I say sadly, it would be a great ending if everything ended with the, the Battle of Jericho and it would just say they lived happily ever after, right? But that's not how it works. <clears throat> Chapter six was a tremendous victory. They were walking by faith. They, uh, they obeyed every instruction in terms of all the laps they had to walk around the city and blowing the trumpets and, and giving the mighty shout. The walls fell down just like God promised they would do. And they went in and they, they did what they needed to in the combat operations of, of the uh, ancient world. So uh, we went through that. They also rescued uh, Rahab and her family as they had promised, the spies had promised in chapter 2. That was additional teaching that we also gave on Thursday night. And so now everything seems marvelous uh, in chapter 7, or in chapter 6. Then we turn to chapter 7 with the word but. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. And I'm just going to stop right there, and we'll talk about this. Um, and you've got some notes available to you. The, um, the contrast between the, vic- the victory at the end of chapter 6 and the, uh, the rebellion to start chapter 7 is, is quite noteworthy. And several things that we need to highlight with respect to this. Remember the ban. 
We talk about the Hebrew haram, we talk about the cherem, the noun or the verb, when we're talking about devoted to destruction. That's what it's uh, set for, it's devoted to destruction, and all belongs to the Lord, either destroyed by fire or dedicated to the Lord and filling the Lord's treasuries, not the personal treasuries, not the personal pockets. We shouldn't be lining personal pockets with personal plunder in, uh, in this way. It is haram, it belongs to the Lord. And because of the sin of Achan, the nation is going to pay the price. One man's rebellion makes a nation pay the price. And I don't want us to lose track of that here this morning. So we're going to focus on Achan here in a moment. And I'll probably have to remind myself how to pronounce Achan. Um, the, uh, by the way, if you want to do this yourself, just right-click a name, make sure you select the lemma, so you have the Hebrew word underneath the name, and then you can click pronounce, and Logos will read it for you. And so you'll have the, the Hebrew pronunciation there. And, and sometimes I do better at this, sometimes I don't do so good with this. Carmi, okay. Zabdi, Zara, Judah. Um, and sometimes I do a, a better job with this, and sometimes I do a terrible job with this. And uh, somebody called me out on that uh, after Thursday night because of my pronunciation of shittim. All right, and I let it go as shittim. And evidently... Um, that's that's not good. So, my apologies for Shittim. Uh, I will do better. I will call it Shittim from now on. I don't know about Akan or Karmi or some of these other ones. So if I if I do mispronounce this, um, I, I apologize. I do note though it says the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. Notice who God is holding accountable. The chapter begins with the B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel, acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. It is a corporate guilt. It is a collective accountability as God had told the nation. The nation was instructed to not plunder. The nation was instructed to take Jericho and put all of it under the ban. And so when one man violates what the nation was commanded to do, we see the effects of that here in chapter 7. So it's the sons of Israel, plural, who acted unfaithfully. And same thing at the end of the verse. The anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel, plural. Not burning against Achan individually, not burning against the person who did the deed, but burning against the nation collectively. Burned against the sons of Israel, plural. Achan, uh, or Achan, if you want to pronounce it like that, uh, Strong's number 5912. Uh, it does mean trouble or troubler, and he is in fact a troubler. So he was very aptly named. Uh, somehow his parents were given a, a prophetic insight on the day that he was born and uh, named him appropriately. He was personally responsible for his personally sinful actions. And we're going to see both at, uh, at work here today. We'll see the personal accountability. We'll see the national accountability, the collective corporate accountability. But he is called the troubler of Israel. And there is a principle, actually, that's given in Deuteronomy. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own guilt. And when we're talking about personal sins, there is personal accountability and there is personal guilt that's assigned. But we have to go beyond that today to discuss the national consequences for what this person did within the nation. Beyond the personal responsibilities 
the family responsibilities. The family of Carmi had familial responsibility to discover and expose the evil within their sphere of accountability. Why did they not uncover it? Why did they not expose it? Why were they unaware of it? Why were they ignorant or oblivious to, uh, to Aiken's activity? And how oblivious were they? How willfully do you have to pretend not to know something when you really should have known something? And God holds you accountable for, for that. Likewise, the division of Zabdi has a divisional responsibility. The clan of Zerah has a clannish responsibility. I'm going to come back to this point in a, in a few moments. Um, I just want you to see where the, the logic of this progression proceeds. From the family to the division to the clan to the tribe. The tribe of Judah has a tribal responsibility to discover and expose the evil within their sphere of accountability. And then ultimately the nation of Israel had a national responsibility to discover and expose the evil within their sphere of accountability. And that's what this chapter is all about. They're going to root out the evil. It's going to be exposed. They, uh, they didn't stop it, but once they discover that it took place, then they're going to remedy it. And the remedy is going to be immediate. The remedy is going to be forceful. And the remedy will be a deterrent to it ever happening ever again, as we see it spelled out here. So the Lord's anger is directed against the nation in response to the rebellion of one man. And I hope we, we recognize that. Remember, Sodom could have been spared with ten righteous men. There is a dynamic at play when believers can have a blessing by association, can form a pivot, and can be uh, the salt and light that preserves a community. We've had that teaching before. All right, so it's the sons of Israel, plural, that acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban because Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. All right, let's get past verse 1. We've got to cover 7, 8, and 9 this morning. Can't spend the whole time on verse 1. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And this seems to be a routine. He had sent a couple of spies into Jericho. They spent the night at, uh, at Rahab's place. Uh, now he is spending, sending spies to Ai. That's going to be their second uh, city of conquest. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, only about two or three elef, two or three thousand men uh, need to go up to Ai. Do not uh, make all the people toil up there, for they are few. This is another case where my pronunciation is going to be wrong. Logos is going to tell me that it's pronounced I. I. All right. But man, I'm 52 years old and, or 53 years old and I, it's hard to overcome certain habits. But I guess 6,360 sermons later I'll finally fix my I pronunciation. But on the recommendation of these spies, remember, spies would never recommend anything wrong, right? Didn't we? We learned that with the ten spies that wanted to go back to Egypt. Spies would never make a bad recommendation. So these guys say, eh, easy pickings, small potatoes, let's just send a few. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. 
And I think that's also a mistake, because remember, as we've seen already in this chapter, God is dealing with them as with a nation, as a whole, as a collective body. It is the nation that is uh, conquering. And there'll come a point when the national conquest will divide into tribal conquests, but we're not there yet. This is still pretty early. This is still one city down and many, many more to go. So they can't break into small potatoes uh, for city number two. It's going to come up later for the mop-up operations. Anyway, so about three Aleph, 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. Well, that didn't turn out so well. How did that happen? The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabaram and uh, struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So the tremendous victory at Jericho is now followed by a, a pathetic, sad, depressing uh, defeat at I, or AI, as I prefer. <laughs> All right, this is going to be tough. Anyway, um, 36 men, 36 men, okay? And they're freaking out at the loss of 36 men, which is part of the evidence we looked at back in chapter one of numbers when we were talking about the numbers and how the big numbers may not be as big as we think they are and how we need to do more text work, textual criticism work on the the manuscripts and see uh, do we understand the use of Eliph in the way that it's being used? Are there really 600,000 soldiers? In in which case the loss of 36 is nothing, okay? I mean, if you've ever played Risk, you know you just keep throwing more and more armies against it. And yes, you take horrendous losses, but who cares? you got more and more to keep throwing at it, and that's how you win the game of Risk. Likewise, if you've got 600,000, you and, and you're only sending 3,000 up to the city? What is that? All right, I think we need to do more work on the numbers, and I'm, I'm really, really eager for, now that Titus' second book is, is, is out, waiting for that third book where he promised me he's going to be working on these, on these big numbers and numbers, the population estimates of the Exodus generation. All right, anyway, so they lose the battle, and Joshua now has a problem because he's the leader of this band. He's the successor to Moses, and one victory and one defeat, the one-on-one one record is not what Joshua was hoping for here. He was hoping to go undefeated as, as they march through the, the conquest and have the undefeated season at the end of the year. So Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And this is a proper response. This is spiritual leadership showing the humility and and just throwing themselves on the, the mercy of the Lord, seeking his will, and then asking why. Joshua said, alas, O Lord God, why? And But the better question would be, why were we defeated? What do we need to remedy? Instead, he's got this... Uh, why did you uh, bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. That is a terrible question on Joshua's part. It reflects, uh, I think, the anguish of the defeat and his, his uh, despondency in this. O oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. They will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will uh, you do for your great name? I mean, how long is the reputation going to last? Remember at the end of chapter 6, Joshua had an amazing reputation because the defeat of Jericho was overwhelming and his, na- his fame was spreading. But now with this tremendous loss, the word's going to get out that, you know, yeah, Joshua's great, but all of his soldiers are cowards. 
And uh, he's concerned over that. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded them. You know, the real issue is the sin in the camp. You've got to root that out and the victory is going to go fine. They've even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they've also put them among their own things. So this is, this is absolutely deliberate. It's intentional. The cover-up shows the cognizance of guilt and they, they know they're wrong for what they're doing. They think they can hide it and that just makes it worse. This seems to be a newsflash for Joshua. He didn't know about any of this. And so once he's informed of this, he's going to have to take action to, uh, to root it out. So the Lord goes on to say, Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. And this is an opportunity for confession. This is an opportunity for Achan to to bring it forward and and turn it in, right? But he's not going to do that. Just like when Jesus says, The the hand of one who betrays me is on the table. It's a chance for for Judas to come clean and say, Yes, Lord, that's me. Um, But, you know, God's very faithful when he gives these confession opportunities and then he's very faithful when uh, the the rebels continue to rebel and keep their keep their sin hidden anyway so fair warning in the morning you shall come near by your tribes it shall be that the tribe which the lord takes by lot shall come near by families and the family which the lord takes shall come near by households and the households which the lord takes shall come near man by man And this passage is so helpful for us because it helps us to see the distinctions and how Israel was was constructed, how they were put together on a tribal basis, how the the tribes had their clans as the subdivisions and how the clans had the head of the house subdivisions uh, uh, for their families. And then how even the family, the head of household, has a number of men that made themselves be... uh, married men with children of their own okay because a house is more than a single generation as we see in the case here with um, the selection of of Achan coming near man by man then the man uh, it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire he and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So God describes the procedures ahead of time. They have a full night warning. They know the night before what the procedures are going to be like the next morning. And all that time, I don't know how well Achan slept that night or what else happened, or what discussions were held between him and his uh, family members, the, uh, the folks that were also part of the uh, cover-up, part of the, um, the, the plunder and the, and the hidden things. And so we'll see this here. All right. I'm going to come back to the earlier point that we talked about and just make sure I don't lose my place in the outline here. Yeah, Joshua was unaware of Achan's sin, dispatched spies to uh, conquest city number two. Um, by the way, this is where uh, most of Glenn Carnegie's archaeological work was done. And if you want to take a look at the uh, the artifacts that are in the display case in our church foyer, that Middle Bronze Age pottery that's there comes from the uh, the biblical site of Ai, of, of I, as it were. So 
goes well with our class today. Anyway, the spies viewed Ai as relatively easy conquest, and so uh, Joshua accepts the spies' assessment and dispatches a strike force of three Elef, or 3,000 men, who faced immediate defeat. And uh, Joshua and the elders of Israel humbled themselves before the Lord. They lamented the shame and reproach they had brought upon Israel. The Lord lifts up Joshua and teaches him that the defeat was a spiritual defeat rather than a military defeat. Boy, I wish we would learn that lesson. I wish America would learn that lesson, that our defeats are not political, they're not economic, they're not military, that they are spiritual. The only solution was for Israel to investigate the sin and root it out. You've got to remove the wicked from among yourselves. So Joshua is going to preside over the national grand jury investigation. And they're going to go lot by lot. The casting of lots is like the rolling of dice or the drawing of a short straw. It's a, it's a random method, random from our human perspective, but completely controlled by the sovereignty of God. That uh, you know, the, the casting of lots is random, but God controls every outcome. The outcome of every throw of the dice. And uh, we've got a verse in Proverbs that actually speaks to that. So let's look at the process here. Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel near <coughs> by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Now keep in mind, before this all started, Achan could have come forward and confessed. He had all night. The warning was given. And now they're lined up by tribes, and the first lot goes to, goes to Judah. Is that just a lucky guess? <laughs> you know, you got one out of 12 you know, shots at it, but no. In the tribe of Judah was taken. Then he brings the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites. So there's the clan level. And then the, uh, he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. There's the head of the house. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> each of these lucky guesses, again, what's Achan thinking at this point? Does he have to? He has to know. I think Judas had to know when Jesus said, yeah, the one that dipped his hand in the, in the bowl with me. You know, he's the one that knew that he had done that. But still, he he acts like uh, like he's going to get away with it. He brings the household near man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. And notice as we work our way through this list, we've only narrowed it down from, from Judah to Zerah to Zabdi. Um, Carmi wasn't even mentioned in the selection by lots, but the whole Carmi household was brought near man by man, and Achan was one of the men of Carmi's household. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. See, and Joshua has no doubt that that the Lord has pinpointed the right man. It's not like they're not playing guess who and trying to figure out, you know, um, these things. (laughs) Okay. He knows this this is the guilty party. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. He didn't carry all this by himself. All right? And this is not just something that he just, oh, that looks neat. And yeah, I want, and you know, tuck it in a pocket or something. <clears throat> I coveted them, I took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with a silver underneath it, okay? And again, you don't just do that without people knowing. You know, how many people are living in that tent? What's, what does Mrs. Aiken say about this? <laughs> you know, my wife would say, what are you dragging into this tent? 
So Joshua sent messengers, they ran to the tent, behold, concealed in his tent with silver underneath it. They took them, how many messengers did it take to haul all that plunder out of there? They took them from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua, to all the sons of Israel, poured them out before the Lord. So Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belongs to him, they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Now again, the sons and daughters, why are they mentioned here? We saw the text in Deuteronomy that says uh, that sons are not put to death for the sins of their father. But remember, we're seeing that there's multiple things at work. There's the personal sin and the personal guilt, but there's also national sin and national guilt. We have to consider both sides of that. We also have to consider how much personal guilt did these family members have? Were they complicit? Were they co-conspirators? Were they involved in the cover-up? As opposed to these things. In other words, did they know about it? <clears throat> so brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. So now they're good and dead. And the Lord, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that stand to this day. We discussed the very useful expressions throughout Joshua, throughout Judges, the phrase to this day that gives us insight into the authorship, insight into the date of composition. And it was not that long after the events took place that, uh, that this book was actually written and placed in the canon of Scripture. The, uh, the great heap is still in place to this day. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. I imagine it has a different name these days. Things tend to change uh, their names over the years. But at the point where Joshua was written, it still was known by that name. So provided by the opportunity to confess, Achan confessed what he had looted from Jericho. The evidence is then collected, and the entire family of Achan is brought to trial for sentencing. And we can uh, presume, I think it's a useful, uh, I admit, it's a deductive conclusion on my part, because on the basis of Deuteronomy, on the basis of God's fairness, on the basis of God's righteousness, that when the family members are put to death, it's not exclusively for Achan's personal sins but it is a collective judgment for what the entire household was involved in, that they were all complicit in the hiding of the plunder. All right. Which gets us now to chapter 8. Remember, we're going to cover 7, 8, and 9. The conquest is now permitted to go forth, looting out the, uh, you know, obtaining the uh, the plunder, and... Uh, putting to death the, uh, the guilty parties, then uh, they're ready to move forward. It's not a military preparation, it is a spiritual preparation. With the nation now in a, in a state of holiness before the holy God, they can now proceed in obedience by faith, and, uh, and AI will be conquered uh, forthwith. It's going to be uh, a simple matter. So the, uh, the first attempt was not ordained by the Lord, but the second attempt is going to be made, and notice, by the entire army, not a limited human force based upon a finite perspective of human ability. And again, I, I stressed that in the last chapter, they, based on what the spies said, they said, oh yeah, three LF, we'll, we'll take that, easy pickings. And in the process of that, Joshua, I think, fatal, fatal error of leadership, 
Joshua did, he took their word for it. He did not inquire of the Lord. He did not take the matter before the Lord and say, Lord, uh, the spies are reporting, uh, you know, three elf is sufficient. Uh, you know, do you agree? In fact, just inquiring of the Lord for any reason could have tipped them off to the fact that they were out of God's favor. <laughs> that the Lord could have said, don't go up there, you've got, you've got plunder in your midst. Or he could have just not answered at all in his silence would have been deafening and would have been another clue to Joshua that, uh, that all was not well in, uh, in, the, in the tents. Anyway, so uh, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. So don't just take a small subset. Don't just take a strike force. Don't just dispatch a, a division or a company or whatever you're doing. Um, take the entire nation. This is the national conquest. And so they do. Uh, you shall do to Ai and to its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. And this time they get to plunder. Uh, remember Jericho was first fruits. God gets the first fruits. But God doesn't get the first, second, third, fourth, fifth fruits. God gets the first fruits. They do get to plunder Ai. They get to plunder most of the, of the cities that they take in this conquest. So they will be able to plunder. Through stratagem and ambush. Remember we talked about stratagem. It's, uh, it's tactical deceit on the battlefield. But it doesn't violate the commandment, thou shalt not lie. The, the stratagems of war are perfectly valid in the plan of God. Anyway, you shall set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. Now, again, we discussed the nature of an LF, and what's the nature of 30 LF, or what's the nature of 30,000 men? And if you're going to hide behind the bushes and set an ambush, are you, which is easier to hide, 30 LF or 30,000 men? Anyway, this is part of the discussion as well. Uh, but choose 30 Aleph, valiant warriors, set them out at night. He commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. I and the people who are with me will approach the city. When they come out to meet us at the first, we will flee before them. Now, they're going to be overconfident because of the day before. They're going to think it's, it's going to be another massacre like they, they enjoyed yesterday. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. They will say they are fleeing before us as at the first. So we will flee before them. And this is just the rope-a-dope. They're going to run and they're going to chase. And, and, and by the time they realize they shouldn't be leaving their city undefended, then uh, the ambush will be, will be sprung. Isn't this fun? I could, I could read these chapters all day. This is, this is just neat stuff. Okay, Good army stories. My apology to the Navy people among us. All right. So we'll come out, uh, they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. They will say they are fleeing as of the first, so they will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush, take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. They will be, uh, then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So what a difference. What a difference a day makes. Because they're they're in the will of God, they're listening to the Lord, they're inquiring of the Lord, they're following His instructions. It's, it's like the Lord was totally absent on the first, uh, on the first attack of, of I in uh, Joshua chapter 7. So Joshua sent them away, they went to the place of ambush, remained between Bethel and I on the west side of I. 
But Joshua spent that night among the people. And uh, time for more prayer, time for more staying in fellowship and, and seeking the Lord, all these things. Remember, it's spiritual, not military, in this conquest. So all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city, camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and I, and he took about 5,000 men, or five Aleph, and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, and its rear guard on the west side of the city. And Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. And it came about when the king of Ai saw it, the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. He and all the people of the appointed place before the desert plain, but he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. Something else too I think is very useful is that before any of the invasion, at the point when they crossed the Jordan River, God had already sent forth angels into the land and they'd already removed all of the fallen angels, all of the demons, all of the spiritual forces that might have tipped off uh, the human beings in Jericho and Ai and all these cities. Uh, the fact that they lost all of their demonic and fallen angel support is huge because uh, that allows for many of these ambushes to take place when otherwise you know, a random stray demon or fallen angel could have could have tipped him off to this anyway so the ambush works and they pretended to be beaten before them they fled by the way of the wilderness all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them pursued joshua were drawn away from the city so not a man was left in Ai or bethel who had not gone out after israel and they left the city unguarded and pursued israel it's actually a twofer here benefits in in depopulating uh, i and bethel both so the lord said to joshua stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward i for i will give it into your hand joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city so the men in ambush that was the signal men in ambush rose quickly from their place when he had stretched out his hand they ran and entered the city and captured it and quickly set the city on fire. And so the men of Ai turned back. They probably said, Ai, 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 Ai. You think? I don't know what they said. And um, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky. They had no place to flee this way or that. The people had been fleeing to the wilderness to turn against the pursuers. So yeah, the classic ambush tactics and, and now they're stuck out there and they're going to get uh, obliterated. So Joshua and all, they stop pretending to run away. They turn and fight, and it's, uh, it's comprehensive. All right. No one was left of those who survived or escaped. They took alive the king of Ai, brought him to Joshua, and here we go. Verses 24 and following. So yeah, uh, point two in your outline, Joshua oversees the destruction of Ai through stratagem and ambush. Then unlike Jericho, which was the principle of first fruits, Israel will be blessed by the plunder of Ai. And uh, they get to, uh, to reap the plunder and they get to enjoy the blessings of the plunder. That's verses 24 through 29. All right. Israel took the cattle, the spoil of the city as plunder for themselves according to the word of the Lord. Nothing wrong with this. No judgment. They don't have to hide anything in the tent. They can freely take, freely plunder. Joshua burned eye, made it a heap forever. Uh, desolation until this day. Again, that helps us to identify the time frame for the authorship. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command. They took the body down from the tree, threw it at the entrance of the city gate. 
raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Remember we discussed the, the idea of a corpse that was put to death and then hung from a tree, the principle of the curse, principles that were applied when Jesus died on the cross, when he was hung on a tree, hanged on a tree, and when uh, they took him down before, before sunset because of the principle of the curse. He had already become a curse for those that were under the curse of the law. And uh, the fulfillment of that is, is marvelous when you study the theology there. All right, now we're doing great. We are on time and on pace, and I might even sip my coffee here and breathe a little bit. So it's neat that we've gotten through these chapters, and of all the weekends to, to go through these chapters with all the, the things that are taking place, I think it's, it's remarkable because this chapter is in the news. This altar is in the news. And yesterday, not yesterday, I keep saying yesterday, it was Thursday or Friday when the Associates of Biblical Research held a press conference and released, you can see the video on YouTube, released their preliminary findings and gave a, an indication for a journalist coming out in the discovery of this altar and the discovery of a clay, not a clay, an iron, not an iron, a, oh, this is bad. Um, no? Tin, maybe? Oh, no, i gotta, I got to watch that video all over again. I think it was tin. And, and it was uh, folded over like an omelet. It was folded over like a book. And they were unable, they found it years ago, they were unable to pry it open and, and read anything that was inside. But now the technology has reached the point where they can scan, literally they can scan through it, and they can read the writing that's inside. They still can't unfold it, but they've got the inscriptions that are inside. And it's exciting. Um, it's lead. It's lead. Thank you, Lord. All right. So Joshua was going to build an altar of uncut stones to the Lord. And this is in obedience to instructions that God had given way back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. So Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Again, that's a terrible pronunciation. If you want to be a Hebrew pronouncing purist, do that. Leval. So in Mount Leval is where this altar was built. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, they're going to have two mountains. They're going to recite blessings on Mount Gerizim and cursings on Mount Nival. Okay? Spoiler alert, the text that they found inside that, that uh, lead booklet, that lead thing that was folded over, um, the text that was inside there was a was curses it was full of of curses as we read about here so moses the servant of the lord had commanded the sons of israel as it is written in the book of the law of moses an altar of uncut stones on which no man has wielded an iron tool and they offered burnt offerings on it to the lord and sacrificed peace offerings so this is not designed to be a competitor to the tabernacle it's not designed to be a replacement or an alternative to the the bronze altar or the altar of incense or anything at all it is a unique altar that's set up for this occasion. We might think of it as, a, as an ad hoc committee or an ad hoc altar to commemorate this event, to recite the, uh, the curses that need to be recited. Anyway, he's obeying the commands that were given back in Deuteronomy 27. So he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. 
All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And he's writing a copy of the law. He's putting it in written form. And all the theological liberals out there say this can't possibly be true. They didn't have the alphabet to write this with yet. And, and now the archaeology has demonstrated, oh yes they did. And they had alphabet inscriptions, they had an alphabet language, they had an alphabetical script older than Proto-Hebrew, older than the, the block script that we, that we typically will see today. Anyway. So all Israel with our elders and officers and um, the Levites, the stranger as well as the native, everybody. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them stood in front of Mount Ebal, Leval, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. What a day. Wouldn't that be fun to see if we get to the, the, the video clips of that when we, can, when we get to heaven and see the, the deleted scenes? So Joshua builds the altar of uncut stones to the Lord in obedience to the instructions of the Lord. I think I shared that video link on my Facebook wall the other day, so I will share it on Faith Life for those of you that aren't uh, on Facebook. You can see it in the Faith Life group once I get it there. Uh, it's about an hour video though, so you take an hour to watch it and you'll enjoy it very much. Okay, chapter 9. Israel's victory over Jericho and Ai prompted a united Canaanite alliance formed to fight against Israel. We're going to see that uh, these kings, uh, they're not idiots, they're, you know, they're, they know what they're doing. And even without their fallen angel guardians and even without their uh, demonized empowerment, they still can, uh, can function uh, intelligently and they can still function in a very clever way, um, again, with deception, with deceit with uh, the stratagems of, of war. And rather than sitting around waiting to get picked off one by one, five of these guys get together and decide, you know what, we're going to provide a, a united uh, uh, you know, uh, army, a grand alliance of five kings that are going to lead their armies forth and, uh, and attack Israel uh, on that basis. Which this too, by the way, should be uh, a clue for us when we're making our population estimates of the Exodus. God said specifically that they're going to defeat seven nations greater and larger than themselves. And if we're trying to estimate how large they are in comparison with these seven nations, the smallest of those seven nations is greater and larger than Israel. So if the smallest of those nations is greater and larger than Israel, why does the king of, of Jerusalem think that he needs four buddies to help him? Why do they need to get five kings together and five armies together if the smallest of their people groups is greater and mightier than Israel? Anyway, more, more to study on that. Okay, uh, let's read in Joshua chapter 9. It came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, in the lowland, and on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, when they heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Okay, And this is common. We see this today. 
We see this today. There's, you know, President Biden flew over there and they're all talking, NATO's all talking, they've got this summit trying to decide what to do because Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. So uh, they realize, hey, this is a problem, we don't like it, how do we stop it? What are we going to do? And uh, they come together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. And it's interesting because these people groups would typically fight amongst themselves. They would typically be waging war against themselves, but now they're intent on one purpose. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. And it's, it's almost like you know, what, what could possibly make Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians all cooperate together. They hated each other too. But they all seemed to come together and agree that they needed to stop Jesus Christ. That, uh, that unified them. And uh, same thing happens here. They are gathered together in one accord to fight Joshua and Israel. All right, so they are forming their grand alliance. One party that chose not to join that grand alliance was Gibeon. And the Gibeonites, they had a different plan. And they put their plan into effect first before the, the five kings could get their act together. The, the, the liars at, at uh, Gibeon decide that uh, if you can't beat them, join them. Okay? And if you, can't, uh, if you can't win on the battlefield, then, uh, then through deceit you can trick them into, into taking a vow that the, the Lord God's going to hold them to. And that's what happens here. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, also, they acted craftily. They also acted craftily and set out, which kind of tells you that, that Joshua was crafty when they took Ai. So they also acted craftily, set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out, torn and mended, and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. Want to you know do do the Hebrew study on worn out, <laughs> create a doctrinal principle of the doctrine of worn out, all right? But this is this is all a ruse. You know they're acting like they came this vast distance, and uh, and really they were just local. But they they dressed and they acted like like they were coming from a far land. So they come to Joshua, the camp of Gilgal, said to him and to the men of Israel, "We have come from a far country. Now therefore, make a covenant with us." Warning, Israel was commanded, don't make a covenant with the people of the land. Make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, the the Gibeonites were a clan of Hivites, "Uh, perhaps you are living within our land, how then shall we make a covenant with you? Oh, hey, they are suspicious and they are not wrong. They are suspicious and uh, they're on the verge of, of exposing this whole thing. So good for them. Nothing wrong with being suspicious, you know. I'm naturally a suspicious fellow. I think it's favorable. But here's the problem. In your suspicions, you better be praying about it. You better be going to the Lord. You better be checking it out. Because your suspicions might be true. In which case, God bless, give God the glory. Your suspicions may be totally off track. In which case, God bless, give God the glory. He's going to keep you from making a terrible mistake if your suspicions are wrong. So how shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants, your slaves. Then Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? Now, why didn't Joshua go to the Lord and say, Lord, who are these people? Where did they come from? He would have gotten a straight answer. He would have gotten the truth. But instead he's asking them. How dumb is that? If if you're going to ask a liar something, 
uh, don't be shocked when they lie to you. And, and if you ask somebody, are you a liar? They can't answer that. And how would you believe them? If they say yes, why would you believe them? They're liars. If they say no, well, that's exactly what a liar would say, wouldn't it? Who are you and where do you come from? They say to him, your servants have come from a very far country. Well, yeah, called what? Tell us. Okay, what's the name of your country? We have, a, we have a Genesis 10 passage that outlines the 70 divisions of humanity. We've got a pretty comprehensive uh, geographic, ethnographic survey of planet Earth going on since the days of Noah. And we're in possession of that right now. Joshua, in fact, just finished writing a copy of that uh, very recently. It's fresh in our minds. Who are you and where are you from? Oh, a very far country. You never heard of it. Uh, But because of the fame of the Lord your God, the fame of Yahweh, your Elohim, we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, to Og, king of Bashan, who was at uh, Ashtaroth. So they've got a lot of, they got the history down. They know Egypt, that was 40 years ago. They know Sihon and Og, that was more recently. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provision out of our house on the day we left to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and it become crumbled. And so it's easy to look at a loaf of bread that's dry and become crumbled. And you don't know where that bread came from. You don't know how old it is. It looks old and crumbled, sure. But who says that it came from a far distance and who says it was hot when they took it out of the oven? Okay, These are some of the things, by the way, this is the logic that a lot of the folks use with respect to radio uh, carbon dating when it comes to uh, some of the things that they put into trying to age things and say, well, look how old this is. Look how old it looks. Well, what did it look like before? What, did, what was the starting point and how long has it been under these conditions? You don't know. You're just looking at the present and you can't assume that you know the past. Anyway. And these wineskins which we filled were new and behold they're torn. And these our clothes and our sandals were worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask the counsel of the Lord. There it is. I've been saying it for three chapters now. And, and God finally said it there in verse... Uh, uh, 14. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. They should have. So Joshua made peace with them. And just going on, on appearance, going on what it visually appeared to be like and what the liars were telling them. And if you're going to get on board with what liars tell you based upon what appears to be what they're showing you, good grief, what is that? That's just dumb. And, and forget spiritually dumb, that's just humanly dumb. Okay, and then, and then on top of being humanly dumb, it's obviously spiritually dumb. So Joshua made a peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Now, if Joshua was a woman, an unmarried woman in his father's house, uh, his her dad could invalidate that vow. <laughs> okay, um, but no, Joshua is not a woman. Joshua is the leader of Israel. He's the accountable party. The nation is signing this treaty and the God of truth holds them to it. The God of truth holds them to these terms. So it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors, that they were living within their land. Oh, these are the Gibeonites. These are the Hivites, the clan of Hivites, the Gibeonites. They live over here in Gibeon. 
They are the ones that God told you don't make a covenant with. <laughs> they were the ones God told you to, to exterminate. Well, now what are you going to do? So the sons of Israel set out, came to their cities on the third day. Their cities were Gibeon and Hephira and Beroth and Kiriath and Jerim. Again, I probably pronounced all of those wrong. Just right click, hit pronounce. All right. And, and the Logos computer voice is 100% God-breathed inspired. Okay? You, there's no questioning the inspiration and canonicity of the Logos computer voice. <laughs> All right. So here's these cities. Gibeon, Kephira, Beroth, Kiriath, Jerim. And the sons of Israel... And they can't kill them. They can't destroy the cities. They did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. Well, they're your leaders and you face the consequences of their dumb choices. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live so that the wrath will not come upon us for the oath which we swore to them. If they did massacre them right now, they're breaking their oath before Yahweh and they would be, you know, they would be doomed in that consequence. So let them live. The leader said they became, uh, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation just as the leaders had spoken to them. And now they have an entire clan of Canaanites, not a few, they have an entire clan of Canaanites, these Hivite, uh, this Hivite clan here of these Gibeonites, and they're forced labor. You say, well, well, isn't that a good thing? You know, cheap labor, free labor is not free. You've got to feed your slaves. You've got to uh, tend to your slaves. You've got to, and you've got to deal with the slave rebellions and the slave idolatry that they lead you into. And honestly, uh, all of this cheap labor makes a, makes a country la- uh, lazy in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't do anything because they just take all their oil wealth and they, they hire it all out. Most of the, any of the work that's ever done in, in Saudi Arabia is done by uh, Filipinos and Indians and, and, and Bangladeshis and, and they just hire everything out. No Saudi Arabian citizen works for a living. That would be beneath them in, uh, in these things. Anyway, saw that when I was living over there. So, Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, and here's another dumb question. Why have you deceived us? Say, don't ever ask that. You know, if you catch your kids in some kind of sin or some kind of thing when they're breaking the rules, don't ask them why. Why have you deceived us? Because we're liars. We're liars and Satan's the liar and the father of lies. We're serving Satan. Why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you are living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed and this is curious too, because Joshua is the anointed of the Lord. Joshua is the right-hand messenger of Jesus Christ, and he is pronouncing a curse. You are cursed. You shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, great. <laughs> They're actually not happy. They're not displeased with the curse. This is their way to stay alive. Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we fear greatly for our lives because of you, and we have done this thing. Behold, we're in your hands. Do as seems good and right in your sight to do to us. So thus he did to them, delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. 
But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. All right, so now you have your outline uh, in these notes. The Gibeonites were a clan of Hivites. Israel suspected their origin, but they succumbed to the flattery of the Gibeonites. Israel failed to inquire of the Lord for his wisdom in this matter. So, I mean, I tell you, in, in decision-making in the will of God and seeking the will of God, and as you're, as you're praying over these things and you're not taking at face value what liars might tell you, you know, <laughs> and also think about it too. Think about what an unbeliever is willing to stoop to. What an unbeliever, the curse, the unbeliever is willing to accept just for their own selfishness and their own whatever they think they're going to accomplish with it. I think there's a lot of applications we can make with this. All right. That's why when you're considering marriage, you're not just taking their word for it that, oh yeah, I love Jesus. I, gr- I love going to church and I read the Bible every day. You know, check it out. Inquire of the Lord. Read the Bible with them. See if they really do. See how they pronounce some of these hard to pronounce things. <laughs> You'll find out if, if they're comfortable with their Bible or not. Israel's covenant with Gibeon was against the will of God. We know that. He told them repeatedly, don't make a covenant with these people. But as an oath, Israel could not violate it. So now they've broken one law. Two wrongs don't make a right. They broke the commandment to not make a covenant. Now what are they going to do? Are they going to break a vow to try to undo the first thing they did wrong? And this is, again, this, we, we do this all the time. Human beings do this all the time. They committed a sin, so now they think by committing a different sin, they can remedy that first sin and say, oh, well, I, uh, I married the wrong person. Let me fix that. And now they're going to commit a worse sin. Anyway, there's other, other illustrations too. I don't know why I'm thinking about engagements or marriage these days. All right, we have um, different applications here. The covenant was against the will of God, but as an oath, Israel could not violate it. If they break the oath, they're going to break all of these. Joshua 9, Deuteronomy 23. So Joshua enslaved the Gibeonites to temporal life service to the Levitical priesthood. And that's the the final verses there. All right, next hour we'll come back. We've got chapters 10 and 11. We'll see what happens with these five kings. They finally got their act together, and now they're going to launch their attack. And and they're going to lose terribly. Joshua wins, and we'll uh, we'll tackle that next hour. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. We call upon your faithfulness. We give you the praise and the glory. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.